Father, we don't pretend to know all your purposes and how you raise up some leaders and take down some leaders and put some leaders in place and keep some leaders out of place. But Lord, we're asking you to raise up leaders in this country that will be for the accomplishing of your highest purposes, that will really show your great mercy on this nation and mercy through this nation to the world. And we ask you, we ask you to raise up godly leaders and keep ungodly leaders from office. We ask for that. And we trust you to do that. We also ask you to take note of everything the enemy is trying to do in this country. And we pray you cause all of his plans to fail in Jesus' name. And we just commit this election to you and this country to you for your highest purposes in the name of Jesus. We also ask you to speak your word to us and really make us more like Jesus, Father, because we've gathered in his name as his body. We pray this in his name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, growing up, I had uh, quite a temper. I really had a anger issues. My brother, you know, you just heard Ron Blair talk about him and his brother. Well, it's not like that with me and my brother. <laughs> we were not best friends. We were 16 months apart, and we fought constantly. And our fights were, I mean, our, our fights were brutal. Right? I mean, they were, they were bloody fights. And when, there's times where he tried to throw me off a two-story building I chased him around the neighborhood with a knife, yelling, I will kill you, I will kill you. <laughs> neighborhood kids were not allowed to play with us. I'm serious, they were not. They were not allowed to play with the Hutchison boys. And as I was growing up, I continued to have a bit of a temper. And so when Tracy and I, we were newly married, I'm a new pastor. And we are in South Cooper, and it's a very congested traffic. And somehow, I don't know how, I inadvertently, I didn't, I don't even recognize that I did it, inadvertently cut off this guy in a pickup truck. And he was apparently irate about it because as soon as he could, he, he maneuvered himself to get right beside me. My window's open, his window's open, and he cussed me out like I've never been cussed out and flipped me off. And then he peels out and takes off. And I peeled off and took off after him. <laughs> and I am on his bumper. And Tracy says, so what are you going to do when you catch him, Pastor? <laughs> so I slowed down, and I turned around and let him go. This morning I want to talk to you about overcoming anger and overcoming bitterness and really, the Bible has a lot to say about that. But in order to really, for us to really be able to have victory in this, we need to get to the root of anger. And really, the root of much anger and much bitterness is simply unbelief. Last week, we saw that when we are born again, we are born into what 2 Timothy 4.7 calls the fight of faith. We were born onto a battlefield. We've been doing a series this fall. Our fall series was winning the fight. It was about spiritual warfare. And time and time again, I reminded you that you were born, spiritually born again, onto a battlefield. And we have a real enemy, the powers of darkness. And this is true. And we focused on that during our fall series. But I want to expand our understanding of the battle that which we've been born into is even beyond that. There's something the Bible calls a fight of faith. And last week, I kind of started a bit of a mini-series on this fight of faith. 
Because what it really is, is that we have got to constantly battle unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 is kind of our foundational passage for this brief series. And it says this. Let's look at it again. Hebrews 3, verse 12. It says, take care or take heed, be on the alert, take care. that That's this vigilance of this battle. Pay attention to this battle. Be alert in this battle. Take care, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. So there is the enemy that we are in war with, an evil heart of unbelief. We're to war against that. Because, it goes on, it can lead you to fall away from the living God. That's why we have to take this warfare seriously. There's so much at stake. So in other words, the most basic battle of our life is the battle to believe in the living God and to not allow our heart to become an evil heart of unbelief. It's so important that we understand that beneath our battle against evil, against, beneath our battle against evil in our heart is this battle against unbelief. Unbelief is the root of evil and it is the number one thing that all of us must war against. In fact, all of our sinning grows out of unbelief. All of our sinning grows out of unbelief in the living God and unbelief in what he said in the scriptures. In fact, last week we took, we started off this series last week and talked about how unbelief is the root of anxiety. We talked about how we have to, have to overcome this unbelief if we're going to overcome anxiety. We have to believe the promises of God. If we believe the promises of God, we can overcome anxiety. And we just took one example of that. We took Psalm 23 and just took that one psalm and said, if we just believe the promises in that one psalm, we could overcome so much of the anxiety that most of us struggle with. Well, today I want to talk about the unbelief as the root of much anger and bitterness and how to overcome that. Again, the real problem behind much anger and bitterness is basically just unbelief in the promises of God. This morning, what I want to do is I just want to take two promises. Two promises. If we believe these two promises out of the word, we will overcome much of our anger and bitterness, maybe even most of it. The first promise we're going to look at has to do with what God will do to the person who made you angry why you can release that. And the second promise has to do with what God will do in you and for you as you are in the trial that has caused you to be angry and frustrated and bitter. So let's look at these two promises. First promise. The first promise is that we must believe that God's justice will prevail. We have to believe that promise. So the first way to battle the unbelief of anger and bitterness is to believe that God's justice will prevail. See, when we are wronged by someone or maybe betrayed by them or lied to or stolen from or they've been unfaithful to you or they rejected you or hurt you, what oftentimes really rises up in us are feelings that they should be punished. And Lord, let me be your instrument. <laughs> I know some of you thought that if you hadn't prayed it. And maybe they should be punished. Maybe they should be, 
Perhaps, perhaps you begin to think, you know, I would like to, I want to see them punished. I want to get them back. I want them to pay for what they've done. And this anger is boiling inside you. And if you just let it boil long enough, it becomes, it becomes bitterness. Well, the truth is this. The truth is God is not pleased about what happened to you to make you angry. He's not pleased about that. But he's also not pleased about our bitterness. And the reason he's not pleased by this is because the root of it is unbelief. The root of his unbelief. Now, if we're not believing the promises of God, then we are walking in unbelief. What promise am I talking about? I'm talking about one particular promise here. Let's look at it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. And here's the promise. I will repay says the Lord. So what the text says is that God has made a promise that he himself will repay all wrongs in perfect measure. His justice will prevail. No wrong has escaped his notice. He sees its evil far better than you and I do. He hates it far more than we do. And he claims, God himself claims the right to take vengeance. So the question is, is do I believe that promise, that he'll do it? Do I really believe it? Do you trust God to settle accounts for you far more justly than you could ever settle them? If you do, then the text says that then if you really believe that, you'll stop savoring revenge. You'll let it go. You'll leave it to God. Okay, God, here it is. You got it. You'll take care of it. And that frees us up then to actually return good for evil. That actually frees us up to then give a blessing where there's been a cursing to us. In fact, let's look at the whole passage together for a moment. Romans chapter 12 is the passage I'm referring to, the context. Let's actually start up in verse 14. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you and bless, you know, bless and curse not. Now, how is that possible to do? Bless those who per persecute you. Bless and curse not. How do you do that? Well, that's where the rest of the passage comes in. Down to verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's key. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Now, what does that mean? That's one of those verses you read over and go, I don't know what that means. You keep reading. What does it mean? Well, there's actually, there was an ancient Egyptian practice in which a repentant person would carry burning coals on his head as evidence of the reality of their repentance. So the coals were a dynamic symbol of change of mind which takes place in a person's life because of these deeds of love that were done to them. So as we are freed up to bless, not curse, to overcome evil with good, that actually, we, that actually is going to cause conviction and repentance to come upon the very person. But then he ends the passage in verse 21, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if we believe that God's going to take care of the situation far better than we ever could, 
And he's also going to take care of us through the situation, and we're going to see that in our second promise in a moment. And not only that, he's going to actually use, you know, our being, you know, good to someone who's been bad to us to actually bring them to repentance. And we see all that, then we are freed up to just release it to him. And Jesus really is our example in this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus gives us the perfect model on how to handle those kind of situations. No one has really been wronged worse than Jesus. I mean, no one's got the raw deal that as bad as he got, you know, he was abused, he was rejected, and he was innocent, totally innocent. And so what did he do when he had every reason, when Jesus had every reason to rise up in anger and in indignation for the injustice that was being done to him? What did he do? 1 Peter 2.23 tells us what he did. It says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So what does Jesus do? He hands his grievances over to God his Father. Now, why did he do that? Well, remember, he became one of us, and now he is showing us that vengeance is God's and justice will prevail so he can entrust himself to him who judges righteously. He can give it all to him. He'll handle it. He'll take care of it. And when Jesus does that, Jesus actually, you know, thusly never allows any sinful bitterness to rise up in his hearts, in his heart. And that is the model for us. So the way to battle bitterness is to believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. So here is the summary of first, this first point. You ready for it? If you keep a grudge... You doubt the judge. It's my Johnny Cochran moment. Those of you who know who he is, those of you too young to know, you can Google later. If you keep a grudge, you doubt the judge. So we believe God's promises. We believe that he will take care of it. And in the meantime, we are freed up now not to walk around angry and bitter, but to bless those who curse us, to overcome evil with good. So that's the first promise. First promise, if we believe that promise, it will enable us to overcome a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness in our lives. We just give it to God. Let him handle it. All right, second promise, I need to spend a little bit more time on, and that is that we also must believe, secondly, that God's purpose, God has purpose in it, that he's going to actually turn it for our good. So the second Way to battle the unbelief of bitterness and anger is to trust God's purpose to turn the cause of your anger for your good. And we're going to look at 1 Peter here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says this. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof, proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, God allows trials in our lives. He either allows them or orchestrates them in our lives, trials that could make us very angry and very frustrated and even bitter. And he does it for a reason. And the reason is 
to so refine our faith the way that gold is refined so that there's a day coming that we will actually, because of that refined faith and spiritual growth received through those trials, we'll actually receive much glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we'll receive it forever. So it's important that we understand and believe that God has a design for our distresses. Whether he allowed it to happen or he actually orchestrated it to happen, he does it different ways. But in all of them, he has a design for our distresses. Now, where do I get that idea that our distresses are designed by God for our good? Well, notice back in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the phrase, if necessary. If necessary, he says in verse 6, and then the word that or so that in verse 7. Let's look at verse 6 again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though, for now, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, what kind of necessity are we talking about here? Who or what is making the distress of these trials necessary? Well, the answer is God. That's the answer in this passage. I mean, Peter makes it plain that the, that Christian distress only happens whether God allowed it or God orchestrated it. It still is happening under the hand of what God is now going to do with it. Look at 1 Peter 3.17. It says, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. What's he saying here? He said, you might suffer for doing what is right, and you might not. The ultimate choice will be God's. If God should will it so, what, how, why would he will it? For his higher purposes in our lives. That's why. 1 Peter 4, 19, again, another passage in the book of 1 Peter. Speaks to the same subject. He says, let those who also who suffer according to the will of God... Entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, Peter is teaching that the sovereign will of God governs the distresses that happen to us. And therefore, the design he has is the design of God. So again, look what he says in verse 6. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. He means basically, if God deems it necessary... What for? That's where verse 7 comes in. So that. So that. Look at verse 7 again. So that. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then that is going to last forever. So what this verse tells us is that the design of our distresses is for a reason. God has a design. He has a purpose for the trial that we're in, that we're distressed by. There's a design. There's a purpose in it. And here it is. The design is that our distresses would refine the genuineness of our faith like fire refines gold so that when Christ comes back, the quality of our faith 
would result in praise and honor and glory from him forever. There is design in your distress. There is design in the distresses for a Christian. God wills our situation now is going to be turned for our good. So let's break down this now in more detail because there's actually five things that Peter tells us to expect when these trials come our way. Five things in just these two verses. So we ought to know what to expect when they come so we're not surprised by them. Here's the five things. Number one, the first thing we need to notice is he calls these various trials. Various trials. In God's design, our distresses are made up of various trials, or as NIV says, all kinds of trials. So the point is that the variety of the point is the variety of ways that we experience distress is going to be great, many, many varied, all kinds of different kinds of trials. So in God's design, it is necessary, he says, to use a wide range of trials. And I'm sure we could have a line coming up here right now telling of a story of the trial you're in right now. And there we'll find out there are various different kinds, many different kinds of trials. A wide range of trials that God has decided are necessary to accomplish the purpose of refining our faith. So our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Various trials. And most of you, and I'm not going to ask you a show of hands, because say you're either going into one, you're in one, middle of one, or you just came out of one. Okay, another thing we know from this passage is that these distresses are brief. Brief distresses. So in God's design, my distresses are brief. Verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So your distress, your trial, your trial has an end. Some of you feel like, is this ever going to end? It has an end. It will end. Your distress from your trial will end. It is brief. You're saying, well, brief's kind of relative, isn't it? I mean, if you say he can hold his breath a long time, you mean two or three minutes. If you say he's pastor of this church a long time, you might mean 30 years. How does he mean brief here? What is a little while here? Well, I'll tell you this for sure. Compared to eternity, it's a little while. Even if your trial is the rest of your life, which is not likely to be, but even if it is, it's still brief. It's still for just a little while compared to eternity. Compared to the inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, waiting for you forever. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, And after you have suffered for a little while, there it is again, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's a third thing that Peter tells us about these trials in this passage, is that these trials are grievous, grievous trials talks about the distresses. The word distress here actually means grieved or sorrowed. So these trials, they, they grieve us. They cause us sorrow. But, hey, but how, if that's true, then why does he say rejoice in this? 
I mean, James says something similar too in James chapter 1. Let's look at that. James says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance has its perfect result that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, how do you consider it all joy? I mean, it's actually causing me grief. It's distressing to me. It's saddening to me to go through uh, what I'm going through. What he's saying is simply this, but even though that trial actually causes you sorrow, back away from it and get the big picture and get the right perspective. And if you get the right perspective of what God is really doing, you can consider it joy. You can have joy in it. And he's actually right now purifying your faith, maturing you so that you're going to receive greater glory in the kingdom to come and it's going to last forever and ever and ever. So it's so worth it. So just count it all joy now. Count it all joy. You know, and the more that that's true for us, the more that causes our roots to really stay planted deep, even though our, you know, branches are being thrashed around in the winds of trial. We're firmly grounded in believing the promises of God. The fourth truth in this passage is that our trials will do to our faith what fire does to gold, refining fire. So in God's design, our distresses are like the fire that refines gold from its impurities. Let's look at it again, verse 7, that the proof or genuineness of, our, of, of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, when gold is melted in the fire, the impurities will rise to the surface. And then the impurities can be removed so the gold becomes more pure and more valuable. That's the picture of what God does with our faith in the fire of a trial. You know, our faith actually, you know, you all are here in this room because you have some measure of faith or you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be sitting here. There's some measure of faith. You have faith. You, have, you trust God's promises to some degree, different around the room, I'm sure, but there are impurities in all of our faith. There are elements in us where there's sometimes we're, we're, we're murmuring, we're complaining, we're pessimistic, we're negative, we're critical. And these tendencies in us really are just the impurities of our faith still. And there's this tendency in those times of trial that we're, sometimes we would, we're quicker to trust in money or people or position than we are to trust in God. And those tendencies basically are showing that we got some dirt mingled with the gold of our faith. There's some impurities in there. And these impurities actually hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and greatness of God. They hinder that, that relationship. So what does God want to do? God wants us to have a fuller relationship with his nearness and goodness and love. So he's got to get those impurities out of our faith. What does he do? He puts us in the furnace of trial where those impurities can be removed. So his aim is that our faith would be more pure and more genuine. And his aim is that we'd be more dependent upon him and we draw closer to him and all be about more nearness to him. That's why he works these things. Let me give you a perfect example of this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, a lot of times we think the Apostle Paul, you know, he didn't have any impurities in his faith. Yes, he did. And he tells us about it. 
In fact, let's look at this account in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He describes this refining design of God in his distress. Listen to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. That's the fire. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that, here's it, here important, in order that, in order that we should trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's the gold. See what happened there? So God took away from Paul an ordinary prop that we all lean on, prop of safety, and he let him and his team feel you know, an overwhelming sense of just human abandonment. They felt it. That was the fire. God let him feel it. Not because God didn't love Paul. He loves Paul, right? But because God saw in Paul a faith that was worthy of being refined. And so he let him be distressed so he could have his faith purified, strengthened. You know, if God loves us and he loves us all, you know, he's, first he saves us, right? He loves us and he saves us. And, get, and so we have saving faith. He gives us saving faith. But he's so committed to us to care for us that he wants to make our faith stronger. And how does he do that? Well, he injects various trials and allows some, orchestrates others to do what? To grow our faith, sweeten our faith, strengthen our faith, mature our faith. Because that's what matters most. John Piper says it this way. He says, our various trials in this life are necessary to our enduring faith. Let me say it again. Our various trials in this life are necessary to our enduring in faith. And they are not just threats to losing our faith. They are one of God's essential means through which he preserves the faith he has given us and keeps us as his own. You know, now, when it comes to trials in our lives, it really is important that we read through to the end of the story. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, if you stop reading the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis, if you read the account where he was sold in slavery by his brothers, he was then in prison, and then you stop the story right there, and you got a very wrong view of God. You got to read the whole story because if you don't read the whole story, you miss the beautiful ending, the ending where he forgives his brothers and, and the ending where God saves his people Israel from drought and famine and all that God was doing. If we stop reading the story before it's over, we miss the happy ending. Same is true in the book of Job. If you don't read all the way to the end of the book of Job, then God seems pretty cruel. But when you read through the whole story and get to the happy ending, you see how God pours out kindness and care for Job at the end. There's a happy ending. How about in the life of Jesus? If you stop reading the story of Jesus on Good Friday and you don't make it to Resurrection Sunday, then God seems cruel and even weak. But Resurrection Sunday really happened. We weren't, we, you know, we, we weren't just left with a terrible Friday and a silent Saturday. There is Resurrection Sunday. We got to read through the end to the end of the story. And right now, all of us are still in the middle of the story. All of us are. 
The truth is we all love easygoing days. I love them. We all dream of well-behaved kids that never argue. We all want instantly cured conditions no matter what the condition is. We all want restored friendships immediately. We all want marriages that stay in the honeymoon state. We all want all this. We all want to be in a state of constant comfort and ease. We all want that. We all like that. But that's not where God's going to let us live. He will not let us live there because he has called us to far greater treasures that require pruning and placing us in the furnace of trial so our faith will grow. We will become stronger. Trials help us really see God differently too. See, we, get, we learn to see God in ways we'd have never seen him if it's all just comfort and ease. You know, but in honesty, I, I like comfort and ease. And honestly, you do too. But the Lord wants to do something a lot deeper in all of us. And he wants to do something that's going to matter for eternity, far greater for all of us. You know, we all want to know God deeper, more intimately. That our faith is tested in ways that I may not want and by circumstances that I would not have chosen. Amen. You know, when our hearts start to despair sometimes in the midst of a trial, we just want to scream, enough! Enough in this trial. But it's at that time that we really got to fight the urge to believe something wrong, to believe that God isn't good, to believe that God doesn't care. The truth is God is always good. And God, everything God does is always good. And we're not going to see it unless we read through to the end of the story. For all of us, the end of the story will prove his goodness. And one day we'll see it all in a rearview mirror. And it'll be awesome. There's a fifth truth in these, two, in these two simple verses that Peter talks about trials that we should get, and that is this, where it's all leading, that our faith will receive praise and glory and honor through revelation of Jesus Christ. So God's got this design. His design is ultimately for us, for our benefit forever. That's the whole design of it, to refine our faith, to take these free creatures. Now, how, are they, how is he going to make these free creatures really grow in faith? By putting us in trials. Or by allowing trials, whatever the case may be. What for? Verse 7, that the proof of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor through the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, God exalts those who exalt him. He will give praise and honor and glory to those to our faith. I mean, we're going to hear things like, well done, good and faithful servant. There's going to be the unfading, unfading crown of glory placed on heads. There's going to be rewards given out. There's going to be future assignments given to the king, the kingdom to come. And all this is going to be based on how we grew in our faith while we're here. And we're finally going to see at that time that the design of God in all of our distresses has been so that we'd have ex extraordinary joy sharing in the glory and praise of God forever and ever and ever. That's what God promises. Just two promises, that's all. If we just remember, believe these two promises, can you see how much anger and bitterness you could overcome if you believe those two promises? So if you want to un overcome unbelief, anger, 
and bitterness in your life, then believe these two promises. What are they? Number one, believe that vengeance belongs to God, that he will repay those who do wrong. Just let him have it. Vengeance belongs to God. Someone cuts you off in traffic, just, Lord, I know you're going to get him. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> vengeance belongs to God. Just let him have it all. Let him have it. He'll take care of it, and we can return good for evil. And we can love our enemies. We can pray for those who persecute us and so forth. Second promise, believe that God's purpose in your trials is to turn the cause of your anger for your good for all eternity. That he, he has a design behind the distress. And it's ultimately so you will do well at the judgment seat of Christ and receive praise, honor, and glory, the revelation of Jesus. Well, let's stand, and we're going to have just close with the ministry time because I want us to pray through a couple things. And then I want us to sing a song. It really is going to be you know, a song where we really just, our focus is uh, this song will be something that we really, is a declaration of our faith. First, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, we, just, we, we confess, Lord, uh, and we ask for forgiveness for all our complaining and murmuring and anger that's coming our unbelief. Maybe even some this morning, Lord. Maybe over the weekend already, Lord, there's times we just were frustrated and angry and bitter because we didn't believe, Lord, that you got this. And so, Lord, we just we confess that. We thank you for your forgiveness. And, Lord, we just want to really sing this song now as a declaration of our faith this morning that it's a good thing that you're doing when you take us through trials, that you don't waste, you're not going to waste any pain, that it's all going to be redeemed, and that it's all going to be worth it. We see you, Jesus. So now it's just Joey's going to lead us in this song. Let's go ahead and just sing this as a declaration of our faith. to be Thank you. 
Amen. Before we dismiss, I just want to remind you we have Connection Coffee in this corner. If you have any questions for any of our staff, they'll be back to answer questions up here. It's a welcome corner. If this is your first Sunday, I'd love to meet you. Please come up. And we'll also have leaders up here that'll be glad to pray for you for any needs that you have. Please also remember to give a testimony of Thanksgiving across the parking lot real quick before you head to lunch. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you'd enable us by the power of your spirit to be shattered the darkness. People this week, everywhere we go, our schools, our neighborhoods, our places of work, recreation, and use this, Lord, to shine a light of Christ. We pray in his name. And everybody says, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day, great week.